Okay, Ephesians 6, starting in verse 5. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service, as people pleasers, but as servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord whether he is a slave or free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. This is the word of the Lord. What do you picture when you hear the word slavery? As Americans, I think we have a certain concept, a certain stereotype of slavery and institutionalized chattel slavery has often been called by historians America's original sin. And let me be clear at the outset that slavery, as we practiced it in the U.S. in particular and in other countries, was a horrific crime against humanity, and it was also a horrific offense to our creator God, and we'll see some reasons why in this text as we work our way through it. So I always have a question when I come to this text and the parallel in Colossians, and that is why would God or why would the Bible seem to regulate something that is so awful instead of simply banning it? Instead of Paul saying, don't ever, ever, ever practice this in the church, why does he say, slaves act this way towards your masters, masters act this way towards your slaves? And I think a little bit of background on slavery in the Roman Empire 2,000 years ago is helpful in this regard. So let me give you a little bit of information. When he starts off, and notice again that he's addressing slaves directly. And we saw this the last couple weeks, that last week as Richard preached on the text just before this, Paul addressed children directly. Before that, Paul addressed women and wives directly because he saw that whether you're a man or a woman or you're old or you're young or you're a slave or you're free, you are a human being equal in essence before God and worthy to be addressed as this human being that you are made in God's image. The word is doulos. Some of you are familiar with that word because Paul actually would say, I am a doulos of Jesus Christ. It's interesting. He's saying, I'm a bond slave is literally the word. Not a servant who was known by the kind of work that they did, but a doulos, a bond slave who was known primarily by who their master was. Bond slaves were often not known by the work that they did, but by who their master was. Over the lifespan of the Roman Empire, many historians have estimated there were probably somewhere around 60 million slaves. About 10 to 20% of the population, given any era of the Roman Empire, Roman history, Greco-Roman rule, about 10 to 20% of the population at any given time would have been a slave. In an urban context like Ephesus, that number jumps to approximately a third. So you're walking down the street and one out of every three people you meet is a doulos, a bond slave of someone. 
One writer says this, people became slaves through various avenues, birth, parental selling or abandonment, captivity in war, inability to pay debts, and voluntary attempts to better one's condition. Race, interestingly enough, was not a factor. That's the number one thing we associate with chattel slavery in the U.S., in the Deep South in particular, was race. But back then, it was not at all tied to race. Um, Slaves were often abused by their owners. They could be physically abused, obviously verbally abused, but sexually abused. And because the Roman government looked at slaves as property and not people, there was rarely any punishment, including if a master literally took the life of their slave. But at the same time, most owners realized my slave's productivity is tied, it's correlated to how they're treated. Like if I treat them better, I get more work out of them, I get more productivity, I get more prosperity. And so actually in the Roman Empire, many, many slaves, a large percentage of slaves were treated almost as part of the family. And that's why, by the way, slaves and masters' relationships are showing up in what is called the family code, where Paul addresses husbands and wives, parents and children, slaves and masters, because often they were considered a part of the extended family. By the way, paradoxically, slavery in the ancient Roman Empire was no indication of social or economic status. A slave would take on the status of their owners. A slave could do menial work, like what you think of slaves, like in the Deep South, were often doing menial work, like laborious tasks out in the field or in construction or something like that. But many slaves of this time were not just working class laborers. They could hold any level of job. They could be a CEO. They could be a banker. They could be anything. Many of them actually had significant status and wealth. By the way, many people, when when I read this quote earlier and mentioned voluntary attempts to better one's condition, that's a reference to the fact that many people sold themselves into slavery intentionally because after a period of time, they would become Roman citizens and gain all the rights and benefits that come with citizenship. And historians tell us that more than half of the slaves would have become free by the age of 30 And almost all slaves would have become free at some point in their adulthood. So to summarize all of what I just said, Paul is speaking into a very complex situation. He's speaking, first of all, to like, I mean, in that church, there may have been thousands of slaves. Across the empire, there are millions of slaves who could have subsequently read this letter or heard of this letter and the instructions that he's giving. And Paul understands, I'm covering everything from the incredibly abusive relationship between a slave and a master and the more typical, almost like servant or son kind of relationship where someone's working for their ultimate freedom. I'm going to kind of round this out, and and, and admittedly, this is an oversimplification, but he's speaking into a spectrum of what I'll call asymmetrical relationships. By asymmetrical, I mean relationships that tie identity and money and power together where one person or one party has significantly more authority or agency or power than the other person or party. So it's asymmetrical. 
It's not a balanced relationship where we, we share power and authority and agency. One has almost all of it. One has almost none of it. Does that make sense? Okay, so we're, we're covering the spectrum. So I, I say that because I want this to be practical for us today. And while none of you are slaves, none of you are a bond slave, none of you are owned by another human being, many of you are in a situation where it's not just a subjective feeling. In fact, you do not have authority in your circumstance and you don't even have agency to really change your circumstances. Some of you can think of particularly a vocational setting, maybe an academic setting, where you're like, I have no authority, I have no power here, I have no agency, I'm just supposed to sit here, go here, do this thing and work and benefit this other person. And so while this is not an exact parallel, we do see many similarities between the master-slave relationship, again, not of the deep south in the 1800s, but of the type of relationship that Paul speaks of. Many similarities between an employer-employee relationship for many of you. And I want to show you how Paul walks through both parties, both master and slave, directly addressing each party. And he gives each party a what, a how, and a why. And then I want to wrap up with a couple gospel implications and gospel applications this morning. So let's go. First of all, I'll go in the order Paul goes. So verse 4 Notice he begins with instructions to those without authority or agency. And I'll put it that way. So slaves, yes, in his day. But also to many of you who would say, I don't have authority. I don't have agency. Well, he's talking to you. Okay. What? He says, servants, obey your masters. And obey, as Richard talked about some last week in the parent-child relationship, is a little different word than the word submit that we see earlier in, the, in a different home relationship between husbands and wives, just voluntarily arranging yourself under. The word obey literally means something like listen in order to obey. And I want you to just think about what you need in order to obey someone who has authority over you. You need three things, and I think this is a helpful paradigm. Obedience requires, number one, listening. Number two, understanding. Number three, doing. Okay, so in order to obey an authority, in order to obey maybe a boss or a team lead or something like that, someone who has God-given authority over you in your life right now, you have to listen to understand in order to do. And just... This is super simple, but think about the way you interact with your God-ordained authorities. Again, maybe in an academic setting, maybe a teacher or a principal or a guidance counselor, maybe in a vocational setting. And think about, do I listen carefully to my God-ordained authorities to really understand what they're asking me to do? Is it a priority of mine that when they're speaking, when they're giving instructions, I'm giving careful attention so that I can understand. You know, a respectful way to submit to a leader is to ask clarifying questions. If you don't understand something, how are you going to race off in your job or in school and really obey and honor the spirit of what is being asked if you don't understand? And then when you do listen and when you do understand, what do you do with that? Um, so we were 
traveling overseas in, in Paris and the boys were just like filled with energy, excited to go everywhere and see all the things and eat all the croissants. And, and, and every place has croissants. And so we had to stop at every place, you know, and <laughs> fork over more money. It's like, how do these croissants compare to these and these and these and these and all these other croissants? And I can't wait to see our credit card bill. And what you think is about a one-to-one -one correspondence between the euro and the US dollar is more like 1.2. And so it's really 20% more. So that, that'll, be, that'll be fun to see that bill of like what croissants add up to. But they're eager to, to run off to the next thing. And uh, if you've been to Paris, I don't know how their streets were laid out or even why, but it's not, it's not built on any kind of logical grid. There are diagonals and there are roundabouts and there are some square blocks and then there are other like just wonky blocks. And so like they would just rush off to do the, the, to do the thing and we'd have to like over and over be like, well, hold on, stop, because we actually have to go up this diagonal and then over this diagonal and then back up to get kind of like where we're going. My point being, if you don't first listen to understand, you can be eager, you can be enthusiastic. You're like, I want to give my heart in obedience to those who have authority over me, but it's impossible to do unless you're first listening to understand. So that's the what. Now, how? And, and by the way, I pause here to share the how. One, because Paul does, and so therefore it's important. It's God's word. But two, I think we all understand that there are many ways to give an authority technical obedience and basically disobey the whole spirit of what is being asked, right? We can send our kids to bed and sometimes they just go to bed and other times like if there's you know kicking and screaming and stomping and negotiating and complaining and bargaining and all of these things you're like okay you're not doing what we're asking to do well eventually I'm going to do what, what you're asking me to do and we have this little thing that many of you may have as families or your parents had it and it's cliche but it kind of works like obey immediately, sweetly, and completely, right? Immediately, there's a time thing. It's like, if you just obey when you get around to feeling like obeying, then in fact, you're not actually obeying. You're just doing what you want to do when you want to do it. And at some point, you agree like, okay, I'm exhausted and I should go to bed. But obedience is immediately. You, you do it when you're asked. Sweetly, like your attitude matters when you're obeying. And completely, like the scope of what you're asked, if you're doing just a portion versus the whole thing, it's not obedience. And so Paul kind of gets into four things here that are like this. How do we obey those who have authority or agency over us when we do obey? So notice, first of all, verse five, he says, with fear and trembling. And I wanted to say, when we hear that, we're like, wait, so I'm supposed to be like afraid of my master, I'm supposed to be afraid of my boss, I'm supposed to be afraid of my teacher, and trembling, I mean like, so I'm quivering, I'm shaking, and let me just clarify, this is an idiomatic expression. We have many like that, where we say things that you would not take it literally, and once you learn the idiom, you're like, oh, it's never meant that you're really supposed to like do that. Like we just kind of know. So this is an idiom that means respectful loyalty that fears letting someone down. And it was often used in a family dynamic of just like, I am loyal to my parents who God has put in authority over me and I don't want to let them down. So I'll say it this way. The first how is with respect, obeying with respect, obeying with honor. Like when you're at work and you, you don't 
maybe want to do what a boss is asking you to do, like you're able to say, nevertheless, you have a God-given authority over me and I want to honor you. And does it sometimes surprise coworkers or fellow students or something that you would show respect for someone that you disagree with? Do you know that agreement is not a necessary condition of respect? I think our society has lost that, but you can very much respect and honor someone, treat them with dignity, even if you don't agree with them. And that's the first thing Paul is saying here. Servants, there are many times, especially the nasty masters, are going to ask you to do things, and you may disagree, and that's fine, but you can treat them with respect. Going on to the second thing, continue with verse 5. He says, and with a sincere heart. And we hear sincere, and we think, like, says the opposite is uh, insincerity. Yes, but not particularly with this Greek word. The, the opposite, the, or sincerity, the, the idea here is simplicity, or we could say with singleness of purpose. And so Paul starts by saying, obey with respect. Number two, he says, obey with single-mindedness is how I put this. Because the opposite of simplicity or sincerity is duplicity. And what is duplicity? It's like being two-faced. It's being double-minded. You, you probably work with duplicitous people. People who, you know, they're like, I am dead set against this project. I'm dead set against this agenda. I'm dead set against this meeting. And then all of a sudden, like, popular opinion swings where it's like, this is the cool thing to do or the boss is behind it. And you're like, oh, was, the meeting was my idea and the agenda was my idea. And that's, that's duplicitous. It's working, saying one thing one time in one context, saying something different in another context. Apparently, this is a problem at the time that Paul is writing this letter, just like it's still a problem today. So his idea with single-mindedness is basically like, what is your single purpose, servant, as you seek to obey? And it's not really like, why are you doing what you're doing? Because Many people back then would say, what do, what do you mean, why am I doing what I'm doing? I'm doing what I'm doing because I don't have any other option. I'm a slave. So they didn't process questions like, why do you, why do, you do the job that you do? They're like, because I have to. I'm owned by another person. But beneath that, you could still say, okay, yes, I'm owned by another person. They tell me what to do. But what objectives do I have in doing what is asked or required of me? Like, what, what purpose do I have? What objectives do I have that bring clarity to my service? And that's the idea here, that even if you have to do in your job or in your schooling what you have to do, you can still say, I'm not going to say one thing to one party and another thing to another party or before this thing until the moment I'm against it or against this thing until the moment I realize that I should be for it. I'm going to have some objectives that are clear, that are simple, that, that guide me in my obedience. Going on verse 6, he says, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers. And that's pretty straightforward. Um, Paul continues to, to love and to use these compound words that he kind of makes up. Like literally, like eye service or an eye server, people pleaser. Okay. Let me put it this way. Positively, work with integrity. Integrity, where, where you're the same all the way through and you're working for the right reasons, the right causes. We all know this person who is working as a people pleaser. You know, and maybe, 
this kind of manifests itself a couple different ways. Maybe this is like the incredibly lazy person that's just like on TikTok all day. And then it's like the boss is coming around. They're like, whoosh, and they like suddenly look busy. And then they go right back to what they were doing with laziness or taking advantage of the company or sending personal emails or whatever the thing is. Just mailing it in, but want to look good and then don't care, right? And there is that in situations today where many of you don't have authority or agency. Just to take advantage of a boss, but then to look good and then to go back to taking advantage of. Um, there's another way this manifests itself, not in laziness, but actually in industriousness. Marty used to have a job in the LA area where many of the people in her company were, they were working at a hedge fund. And so they're on like New York Stock Exchange hours, but on the West Coast. So they're coming in at like four o'clock in the morning and they're ready to go. And they're still there at eight and nine and 10 o'clock at night. And it's a very different thing, but it's like, what, why am I doing what I'm doing? Because I'm proving my, I'm gonna work so hard to get my life so out of balance because I, people are watching. And the people that get the promotions and the people that get the, the VP office in the corner are those people who are industrious and they get noticed and they get personal praise and they get promotions, but they could just be working to please other people and to get the commendation of people. So work with respect, with single-mindedness, with integrity. Finally, verse seven, he says, rendering service with a good will, literally with a good mind or a good understanding. This word has a wide semantic range, so sometimes it's translated kindness, like the goodwill is kindness. Other times the goodwill is something more like enthusiasm, like excitement for what you get to do, which may sound weird for a slave. Like, why would you work with excitement or enthusiasm? I'm going to use the word excellence. So work with respect, with single-mindedness, with integrity, with excellence. And I use the word excellence because goodwill doesn't do the bare minimum to get by. Goodwill is not sloppy. Goodwill is not careless. Goodwill obviously doesn't mean mean-spirited, but it also doesn't mean neutrality. Goodwill means good, positive. Like you're, you're working with a positive view of the work that is put before you, a positive view of the good goals that you intend to accomplish in your work. And I want to pause here as, as we're reading through these, and I can, I can hear many of the objections that would come from an ancient slave, and I can hear them today, and I've experienced many of them. Stuff like this. Like, okay, you're telling me I should work with respect, with single-mindedness, with integrity, with excellence, but you don't, you don't know my boss. Like, he is a terrible person, demanding implacable, like unable to be pleased, no matter how well I do what I do, no matter how quickly, no matter how much that person gets credit for what I'm doing. And you could say, that person is not worthy of my respect. She's not worthy. I'm, I'm not going to respect a person that is that terrible. Or someone could say, you don't understand my job. Like, I would love to find purpose in my job, but I don't know what purpose my job is other than getting a paycheck and paying my bills and trying to stay caught up as inflation spirals because I frankly have a menial job or a meaningless job. And some of you feel that way. You work and work and work and you're like, what, what single-minded purpose am I supposed to have in this work? There's no point. I'm, I'm hoping to do something different. Or some of you may say, there's no 
There's no reward for excellence. There's no additional compensation for working hard, for working well, for looking out for the the best interests of the company and for other people, the customer. It just doesn't matter. You can say the, the people that play the game are the ones that get the reward, they get the promotions, they get the bonuses. I don't want to play the game. So what point is there in excellence? Someone could just simply say, I'm not enthusiastic. I don't want to do my work with excellence. And if you had my job, you wouldn't be excited about it either. And that's why I think this next point is so important. The why. The why. And Paul goes there. If you're saying, I see scripture calling those without authority, without agency, to be respectful, to be single-minded, to work with integrity, to work with excellence, why would I do that when it doesn't work out? It doesn't benefit me. Well, the first why, notice Paul says, it's because you're ultimately serving the Lord. Verse 5, he says, Obey your earthly masters as you would Christ. Verse 6, as servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. Verse 7, rendering service as to the Lord. And I'm sure in many, many different slave-master relationships, a slave could easily lose sight of the fact, even as someone who believed in Jesus and loved the gospel, they could lose sight of the fact that I am ultimately working for a master who is in heaven My work is done for his glory. My work is done for his mission, like to care for the common good, to help other people around me flourish. And so I want to help you with this, ultimately serving the Lord bit. I want you to imagine that that nothing about that job where you don't have authority or agency, nothing about it changes except that your literal earthly master is Jesus. How would that change your current situation where you don't have authority or agency if you simply saw my master in charge of me is Jesus. And I want to suggest three things. Number one, this changes your attention, your focus. It's like I know what to do today because I know who told me to do it. Okay, I, and, I, and I know the work underneath my work, if you've heard that term. It's like you, you see the surface level work. I'm like, I'm building a wall today. I'm plumbing a building today. I'm taking someone's blood pressure today. I'm writing up a, somebody's will or, you know, teaching a class, coming up with a lesson plan. All of you have different jobs, but you're, you're doing that thing, but you're like, I understand the work beneath my work. That comes from my master Jesus. So now I'm, now I'm focused. Okay, God, you have my attention. I know what to do today because my master, Jesus, called me to do it. Secondly, it changes your attitude. If you know Jesus is the one that's being honored by your work and you're respecting him and you're working ultimately for him, you can see kind of this paradox of like, my work is very important because the master called me to do it. Simultaneously, my work doesn't define me. So I can work hard, but I can also go and rest. I can Sabbath. I am not my work. Thirdly, this changes your affirmation. You know, to use Tim Keller's phrase, God becomes your decisive validator. 
It's like, if I know my ultimate master's in heaven, and it's like, I can't please this master on earth. I can't please this boss. I can't please this team lead or the person I directly report to. I can't please my teacher no matter what I do. But if you understand God is your decisive validator, that means that even if you never hear a word of gratitude or encouragement or affirmation from that earthly master or boss, you know I'm not defined by that person's opinion of me. I'm defined by what God says is true of me. I'm his son. I'm his daughter. I'm loved. I'm accepted. This building that we're in was built as the United States Post Office Garage in 1923. So this year, 2023, it's 100 years old. That's pretty cool. Um, when we were in... Paris, we saw this cathedral, Notre Dame, which is the, the famous cathedral. Does anybody know when this was built? This was built in the 1100s and 1200s. Most of the building, now they've continued to work on it, most of this building right here was built 850 years ago. Okay, by thousands of artisans working over 200 years. And I want you to just think, like, this is perspective, okay? You're, you're an artisan, and all you, do, all you do is chisel stone. And you take big rocks, and you make them into perfect rectangles. So you chisel and chisel and chisel all day. And we found out they chisel on a diagonal so that as the water, as the rain hits the building, it has to flow sideways and not straight down which prevents erosion. So you're chiseling your bricks diagonally every day. Somebody else is stacking them. You got another wood artisan over here doing his thing, the lead roof, the leaded glass windows. But what if you're part of something bigger than yourself? And I'm just thinking over 850 years, how much joy and awe this one building brought to millions of people. How much glory to God it brought that there was a beautiful place that at least in different periods of time, people are actually trying to worship the one true God. Like, by the way, three years ago, 2019, when this building caught on fire, it doesn't look like that today, but it burned uncontrollably for 15 hours. So the roof all collapsed in, that beautiful spire that reaches high collapsed in, but most of that building is still there because there was an integrity of the workmanship where they can pick up and say, we can rebuild and restore its former glory. Don't forget that even in that seemingly meaningful, or maybe it is meaningful, in your mind, or meaningless thing that you do. You're ultimately serving God. You're ultimately contributing to the flourishing and the good of other lives. Much like any little no-name artisan, we don't know their names, that worked on a building like this. So why? Why work with respect, with single-mindedness, with integrity, with excellence? 
because you're ultimately serving the Lord. And then he gives another reason, because the Lord will reward you. See verse 8, know that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is slave or free. And I want to just encourage you with that because some of you know, like I'm working for an unreasonable boss or a team lead who's going to take credit for my ideas, my work, and there's not going to be a compensation for that, that you rightly deserve. But this is a promise of God. Why do you keep doing that thing? In part because he says, because I see. He says, you're master in heaven. So he's implying there's an omniscience. There's an ultimate authority to God. He sees everything and says, nothing will ultimately go unrewarded as you work for my glory and for the good of others. Now I'll take a little bit of time because he only takes this verse with the other side of this equation. So I've been talking about instructions to those without authority or agency. Now, a couple instructions to those with authority or agency. And again, there's a what, how, and why. The what is essentially treat others the way you expect to be treated. See verse nine, masters do the same to them. You're like, that's, that's very vague. By the way, as near as I can tell through a lot of research, but not exhaustive, certainly. I think this command is virtually without precedent in the ancient world when Paul wrote it. People would give instructions for masters. They would talk about how to get the most productivity out of their slaves. But I don't find where another writer from this era is like, masters, do the same for them. Meaning what? Well, specifically, it's like if you're, if you're expecting your servants to serve you with respect, with single-mindedness, with integrity, with excellence then what are you doing for them? You're respecting them. You know your purpose. You're working with integrity. Excellence. You're clear with them. You're kind with them. More generally, you could just say it's the golden rule, right, that Jesus taught. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Masters, if you expect your slave, if you expect your employees to work a certain way, then you work that way. You set the pace. By the way, do you know a lot of secular leadership books that are very popular today have come full circle on this? And they're like, oh, we've discovered in recent years that if you sit in your corner office and just push people around and use them as pawns in your game to make you more money and you disregard their personal lives and their needs and flexibility and human kindness and compassion and you just treat them as means to an end, you will not be an effective leader. But you know who isn't an effective leader? Is an empathetic servant leader. They'll say, like, if you have all the power in the world, you start your own company, great, it's worth a billion dollars, awesome. Are you an empathetic servant leader? We've discovered in the real world that the wisdom of Scripture works. So what? Treat others. Treat your slaves. Treat your employees the way that you want to be treated. How? Verse 9, without threats or manipulation. He just says, stop threatening, which means what? If he says stop, it means they were threatening. And this was very common with slaves, where the person that viewed them as not a person but as mere property would, 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 would launch all kinds of threats. Like, if you don't do more work, you'll be beaten. You'll be imprisoned. I'll separate you from your children or from your parents. Like, you could be raped. You could be sold. You could be killed. 
And, 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 and bosses, masters were constantly manipulating their property by threatening. You're just a commodity. I can lie to you. I can deceive you. I can trick you. I can use you and I'll discard you and I'll get more to fill your place. And Paul says, no, you have no right to manipulate, to control, to deceive another human being. So if you are the one with agency or authority, maybe in your work or school or another situation, think about how you wield that authority. Is there something threatening about the way that you communicate with people in your care? Or are you manipulative? Like just using people as, you're like, I want this done. I'm just kind of using these people. We both understand. Maybe one day they can be the boss of their own thing. But for now, it's about my protection, my advancement. And Paul says, no, that, that, that doesn't align with the gospel. So what, how, why? Why treat others? Why treat others in your care? Why treat people under your authority with this kind of kindness and compassion and integrity? He says, why? Because your master in heaven is impartial. Your master in heaven is impartial. Verse 9, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no partiality with him. And I love this. This is another kind of Paul made up word. Partiality is literally acceptor of the face. I think in our culture today, you may see someone and be like, oh, that person's poor. I can tell by looking at them. Or that person is obviously of another race. I can tell by looking at them. And there are ways that we divide people up because we respect certain faces, certain appearances, and not others. And Paul says that has nothing to do with the gospel. Your God is not an acceptor of the face. Your God is not a respecter of persons. So he's saying, earthly masters, remember, you are not the end of the chain of command. You answer to a master in heaven who has absolute authority. And I think this is so powerful for for not just slave-master relationships, but for all kinds of relationships. Knowing God doesn't accept or reject anyone on the basis of their appearance or status. He doesn't care. He's not repulsed by the exhausted, the filthy, the poor. He's not drawn to hobnob with the elites. He just doesn't care. You know, if you put the highest of the high, the master of Paul's day, and the lowest of the low next to each other and put them on the same scale as God, the highest of the high and the lowest of the low would be about a hair's breadth apart and God would be a million miles away. And that's perspective. Where he's like, you think as God looks down as the eternal, uncreated God who never had a beginning and never has an ending and is perfect and holy and righteous and love and all good things, he's truth. He's looking down there and being like, ooh. So you stop with the partiality. Now, very quickly here, two gospel implications and two gospel applications. These are like a minute or two each. Okay. Uh, <laughs> gospel implication. These are important. I don't want to just fly through this text and be, be done when I think these things need to be said. The first gospel implication is this. Even when, even where, there are differences of power, authority, or agency, human beings are fundamentally equal. That's what this text is saying. 
Listen, we were, the gospel says this. We were all made in God's image. We all sinned. We're all dead in our trespasses and sins. Jesus died for all kinds of people. We all have to repent and believe the gospel. We all need that regeneration of the spirit and we all need to go and live in faithful obedience to Christ to make this kind of difference. So it's like male or female, rich or poor, slave or free, those are real distinctions, but the playing field is level. The poorest person you know that you would be inclined to just look past or maybe use, God forbid, is your equal. And here's the thing, slavery cannot survive unless one person is regarded as more than human and another person is regarded as less than human. See, a master takes on this godlike authority and says, but you're three-fifths. I'm more than human, you're less than human. And Paul says, you're both human, okay? Which is awesome. You're both human. You're both fully in God's image. But you're equals. You're brothers. And remember this in all your relationships. Remember this in all your day-to-day practices. That person is your equal. The second gospel implication, I think this is so important, is even when you don't have the power or authority to change from without, the gospel has the power to change from within. What do I mean? I mean, Paul did not directly attack the institution of slavery. You can see that in this text. Slave, I mean, a text that starts with slaves obey your masters, your earthly masters. That's not a direct attack on the institution of slavery. He didn't lead a violent insurrection. And let me suggest he didn't have to. Um, by the way, it would have been futile and deadly for him to launch a direct assault on something that involved 60 million people. He's one guy. Um, and by the way, when he simply preached the gospel and said that men and women are equal before God, Jews and Gentiles are equal before God, the world was losing its mind over those two things, and he kept getting stoned and thrown out of cities and imprisoned for saying, we're equals. So imagine what would have happened if he said, you know, all slaves go free today, we're, we're marching on Rome or something. But I want to make no mistake that Paul and the other followers of Jesus in the first century were leading an insurrection. They were leading a subversive, inside-out revolution against slavery. See, Paul's teaching those with power, authority, agency, stop treating other people as a category to use for your own pleasure, for your own prosperity, for your own protection. At the same time, he says, start treating them like brothers and sisters that they are. Because they are brothers and sisters in Christ, do the same rights as you. By the way, we never think about it in this context, but you know the, the, the Christmas carol, O Holy Night, and that phrase, chains shall he break for the slave is our brother. It's not a war, but it's a war. It's a war on slavery because if that person is my brother, that person is my sister, 
No long do I have power over them to abuse, to oppress, to strip them of rights. And racing now to this gospel application, the first thing I want to show you is Paul is saying, make the God-given rights of other people your God-given responsibility. What do I mean? We've seen this in all three of these sections. When he talks to wives and he talks to husbands, he doesn't say, wives, here are your rights. Husbands, here are your rights. Have fun. Have it out. Hope you, hope you do well sticking up for your rights. Last week, as Richard talks, parents and children. He doesn't say, children, here are your rights. Parents, here are your rights. Have it out. Slaves, here are your rights. Masters, here are your rights. He doesn't do any of that. What does he do? He says, Slaves, here's your responsibility to your masters. Master, here's your responsibility to your slave. Children, here's your responsibility to your parents. Parents, here's your responsibility to your children. Husbands, here's your responsibility to your wives. Wives, here's your responsibility to your husband. You see that? And it's, and it's so obvious once you see it. He's saying, make the God-given rights of other people your God-given responsibility. I mean, if our world would give up, like I have to fight for my own rights and get angry and get roiled up over everything, it's like, you don't. Christian, this is the kingdom of God. Like may we in Denver build a culture where it's like, it's not about my rights. If you have a relationship with me, I know the rights God has given you and I'll fight to protect your rights. That's my responsibility. And if you choose to do that back to me, that'd be, that'd be awesome, that'd be better. But I'm not going to stand here on my rights because my rights are safe in Christ. I'm going to work for your rights. And that's what he's saying across all relationships. And you see how slavery has to die. If I stop caring about my rights and start caring about, that's a man, that's a woman, that's a child made in God's image. I stand for their rights. Slavery can't survive. So one more time, make the God-given rights of others your God-given responsibility. And then finally, if you can only please one person, please Christ. Masters, and I mean those of you in this room who have some measure of authority or agency or, or power over other people, you can tell them what to do, and you do you know you'll often be hated by others simply because you have that privilege and you can do no right. So use your authority to further God's kingdom and righteousness and to say, I may never get the approval of the people who work for me. They may never be like, wow, you are an awesome boss. You're the best boss I've ever had. Let's, let's do like National Boss Month again this month because you're so incredible. Like you may never hear that, but you can work in a way that you know I'm working to please and honor and glorify God. And if you don't have authority, power, agency, again, many of you are like, I never hear a word of commendation. There are certain bosses that are just plain hard, that are impossible to live with or to please. So make sure you're pleasing Christ. Don't waste your life not knowing that the work I'm engaging in today, even if it's chiseling a perfectly rectangular stone, pleases God. It's for his glory. It's for the joy of his people. I can do this. Asymmetrical relationships, we all have them. And a key to asymmetrical relationships is all parties seeking ultimately to honor their master in heaven and to live for the rights of other people.
and say, my responsibility is seeking what God seeks in your life. So whether in a marriage or a parent-child relationship or a work relationship, let's be these people by the grace of God.